Well, my seven-year-old daughter, her name is Julianne, and uh, you could say she's in a very inquisitive stage of life these days. And so a couple of weeks ago, we're at home, and she asked me, Dad, what's your favorite body part? (laughs) Now, I'm going to clarify something for you. What she really meant was, Dad, what is your favorite part of your body? And uh, typical of me, you know, I tried to kind of evade the question. Said, uh, I don't know. I haven't thought about that. I'll have to get back to you. Then she asked my wife the same question. And now my wife has incredible feet. She has incredible feet. She was a dancer. I guess that's a thing, that it creates good feet. And so she said to my daughter, well, my feet. I've always appreciated my feet. Well, a few minutes later, the question comes back around to me, and, you know, it's one of those moments where you know you can't squirm out of it, right? You, you, gotta, you have to hit it head on, right? You love your kids, so, all right. Uh, my hands. I guess my hands? And my daughter's answer was so precious that I, I have to share this with you. My daughter to this question says, I like my mind and my hands best because they help me concentrate on drawing. Now, how good is that, right? My wife is doing something good with her, right? For her to answer in such a way. So beautiful. But the point is, what I felt in that moment, as I'm hit with this question, which felt a little bit out of left field for my daughter, is that in some way, it's a a picture of our own experience of our bodies sometimes. Many of us are good at thinking poorly of our bodies. I'm too fat, I'm too thin, I'm too tall, I'm too short, I'm too pale, whatever it is. And even if we don't uh, struggle with body image issues per se, we probably all have things about our bodies that we wish were different. But the question is, and what my daughter was in some way helping me get at, was how can we think positively of our bodies? How can we appreciate our bodies and other bodies in a godly way? Can we appreciate or focus on our bodies too much, and what are the reasons for that? This morning I want to explore some of these things, some of these thoughts, and I want to particularly focus on the implications of those questions that we wrestle with as it relates to categories like diet and exercise. This morning's text was 1 Timothy chapter 4, which was read for us just a moment ago, and we're going to look at that text. We're going to look at other insights from God's Word. And and through those, I want to propose to you three critical parts, I feel, to have a God-honoring view of the body. The first thing is that we have to resist idolatry. We'll unpack what idolatry is, but I want to make the case that it's still alive and well in us. Second thing we have to do is restore gratitude. Finally, we have to run after godliness. Run after godliness. Along the way this morning, I'm going to share some of my own story, my own journey of brokenness as it relates to body image and some of these themes But I also want to convey to you the hope that we have for healing and for wholeness as well through Christ. 
And so as we consider this topic, which is for many painful and difficult, I want to first pray for us as we enter in. Let us pray. Lord, we just pray for your grace in this room this morning. God, we know that you, according to your word, call us fearfully and wonderfully made. But Lord, our hearts don't often resonate with that, or our minds, our emotions, our feelings. And so, Lord, would you just meet us in a special way? For those struggling in any way, Lord, I pray that you would meet them, that your grace would abound. But Lord, help us to just receive from you whatever it is you intend by your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we all know that there's a problem with body image in our society. I want to share a couple of statistics with you. For example, studies show that 76% of American adults who are surveyed in 2021 say that the media promotes an unattainable body image for women. Certainly for men, we see this too, but especially for women. 15% of young women have substantially disordered eating attitudes and behaviors. Some studies suggest, on on the men's side now, some studies suggest that men account for about 25 to 40% of all cases of eating disorders. Men are, of course, not so good at reporting such struggles, and so the statistics are skewed. Studies show that one in every 10 gym members struggles with muscle dysmorphia, which is an excessive desire to bulk up, which is often associated with obsessive eating habits and sometimes steroid use. Also, male body image dissatisfaction has tripled in the last 25 years from 15% of the population to 40%. So we all know there's a problem. And much of this undoubtedly has to do with the images that we're bombarded with all the time. We look at digital ads. We look at clothing catalogs. We look at billboards. We think of teens, young adults, even adults who struggle with body image, self-loathing, eating disorders. It seems like just in recent years, as we shop at stores and as we look at digital ads and online, it seems like models and images are becoming a little bit more realistic because, you know, brands, I'm sure, recognize that that is the body that most people inhabit. And so perhaps there's some progress in that way, but fundamentally the point is the struggle reflects that the body is an idol. The body is an idol. And so first we, again, resist idolatry. In the ancient world that, of course, the Bible is written in, but, but also in certain religious contemporary context in our world today, idols are easy to identify. Idols were material statues of wood or stone or metal, and they were placed in shrines, placed on altars, placed in temples. And in the ancient world, and in some case, some sense today, people look to those tangible images, structures, and they are in some sense a representation of an impersonal, intangible God or power or force. These idols in the ancient world and today offered some sense of of security around things like fertility 
or agriculture or military protection. In the Bible, as we look at God's word, God knew that his people were liable to be seduced by these idols, these false gods, and so he commands them against idolatry. We saw this a few weeks ago as we looked at the book of Exodus together. And in the Ten Commandments, God addresses this in the third and fourth, and in some sense, the others as well. But he says, you shall have no other gods before me. God recognizes there's all all manner of gods on offer out there. He says to his people, you shall have no other gods before me. The fourth commandment, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. As we kind of jump to the New Testament, certainly Paul and, and others there, they warn the church against behaviors and attitudes which reflect idolatry. Look at Colossians 3. Paul tells the church there, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is what? Idolatry. And so, in God's word, There's this tendency among his people, which includes us, to be seduced by these idols, to abandon worshiping God. And it's a dominant theme. But I would say to you that idolatry hasn't gone away. It's a real part of our own lives. The idols that most of us deal with in our contemporary world are a little different. They're more sneaky They're often intangible, and yet they still capture our hearts and our affections. John Calvin, the famous reformer, said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. We're good at this. We're good at putting idols in exalted places in our lives and looking to them other than to God. In our lives, in our experience today, idols are often good things that we make ultimate things. They're often things that we look to and focus on other than God for a sense of acceptance or security or purpose or meaning or fulfillment or whatever you feel you need. And one of those things, as we see in our world and as I'm making the case this morning, is the human body. Beginning late in high school and during my college years and even into my early 20s, I had my own experience of body idolatry. For me, this looked like a a, a warped approach to my diet, things I ate, and it looked like an obsessive relationship with exercise. My eating philosophy at that time was to avoid anything that I perceived to be fattening, So I drank skim milk exclusively, no mayo, no cheese, no ice cream, rarely dessert, and not even like casseroles, right? Anything I perceived to be fattening. And now I ate a lot of food. I I had to. I was a college male. I was a college athlete. 
who was obsessed with exercise, and so of course I had to eat a lot. But I had no joy in what I ate. It was highly controlled. I may not have had an eating disorder per se, but I had what some call disordered eating. The darker side of this, I think, was in some way exercise, because for most of those several years of my life, it was strenuous exercise seven days a week. Weight training, cardio, if I wasn't in the gym for at least an hour, it, I felt like it didn't count. And I also played tennis in college, but even, even that, even being in season as an athlete, that didn't necessarily change my routine. And so even if I had a tennis match, playing singles or doubles later that afternoon, that wouldn't change the fact that I would still run four or five miles because my fear was that tennis wouldn't be enough of a workout that day. I was fit for sure, but looking back, it was insanity. What was my goal with all this? My obsession I would say to you, it wasn't necessarily about having this perfect physique. You know, I was doing way too much cardio anyway to get big, as they say. It wasn't even about vanity. It wasn't about showing off. Looking back, I think I was trying to avoid at all costs the pudginess of my adolescence. So for a few years as a kid, I had a I was not at a healthy weight, and there was some level of insecurity about that. And so I I felt in those years as a college student in my early 20s, I, I literally felt, or I operated out of this belief, that I was just a couple weeks of a poor diet or missing workouts away from becoming something that I didn't want to be. That's what it felt like. I was a slave to that. The tricky part about this is that on the outside, everything looked great. I was a good student. I was an athlete. I was fit. I had leadership roles on campus. I had people affirming me for my discipline. But, of course, they didn't know what was happening internally, where there was lots of anxiety, sense of a need to control, and in many ways, a self-centeredness. So in my idolatrous experience, I sacrificed rest on the altar of fitness and diet. I sacrificed time with people. I sacrificed relationships. I sacrificed joy. I sacrificed doing activities that I actually liked on the altar of fitness and diet. And so what did I have to do? I had to repent. I had to repent of this and a journey that's too long to describe this morning. It was through that journey that God slowly and graciously freed me from that obsession. I know as we discuss things like this that it stirs pain for some in the room. It stirs a sense of of struggle or hurt in you. And I, I want to say to you this morning that that's you, grace to you today. Because I know that our culture, pressures from our social circles, our families, images we're bombarded with, hurtful life experiences, all of these contribute to not always feeling totally secure in our body. 
But our great hope, too, this morning is that Jesus Christ died on a cross so that we could be healed of our brokenness, so that we could live under the grace of God and not under the control of our idols and our fears and our anxieties. And so, friend, if you struggle in any way, grace to you. And I pray that God will meet you with his grace and offer your heart freedom like I found. So as people of faith, we first resist idolatry. But the second piece that I propose is that we restore gratitude. Restore gratitude. In our text that was read this morning, Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is a young leader in the church of Ephesus. And Paul, through this letter to Timothy, is calling the church to gratitude. And now the situation in Ephesus at this time was unique. And so, of course, when we interpret Scripture, we appreciate that situation. And so I don't want to overstate an application, but I think we can make at least one connection. And it's that false beliefs, in some cases, lead to unhealthy restrictions. False beliefs lead to unhealthy restrictions. So in Ephesus there, in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, what was happening was that there was some within the church who were introducing a heretical teaching. This teaching, probably based on Jewish, Gnostic, Greek thinking, sort of mashed together, and all of those influences worked together to create this asceticism, this rigid philosophy that discouraged people from marrying, bearing children, and even eating certain things. So Paul says in verse 3, Referring to these false teachers, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. So probably what's happening was some inside that church were imposing these old covenant dietary restrictions into a new covenant community. And this was a problem. Paul knew this was a problem. Timothy knew this was a problem because part of the gospel of Jesus Christ was that all people, not just an ethnic people who have certain dietary laws, can be part of God's covenant people. And so in some way this was an assault on the gospel. In my own journey, which I described, I had false beliefs. I had idolatrous beliefs in my head and in my heart and in my being that certain foods were like an existential threat to me. And what happened was that resulted in these self-imposed restrictions. And the distinction that I want to be clear about is that these were restrictions not rooted in health, but in idolatry. I think you see the difference. Now, I want to be clear this morning that many people have eating restrictions for very good reasons. Perhaps it's a desire to shed a few pounds, get to a healthier weight. Perhaps it's health concerns, allergies, or propensity for certain diseases, diabetes, or heart disease. And so, of course, those are perfectly reasonable accommodations. Those things are part of you stewarding your health and your body. And so I'm not discouraging any of that. 
But I'm saying again that my restrictions, and sometimes in our, your life, maybe there's restrictions rooted not in health, but in something else. Maybe you've seen patterns in your own life, maybe you've seen it in family or friends, but assuming normal health, assuming normal circumstances that I propose the part of our God-honoring view of our body is gratitude. We saw in verse 3 that Paul tells the people to receive food, all food with, with gratitude. And he reiterates this in verses 4 and 5, for everything God created is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Paul says, everything God created is good, and that jumps out at me. You know, it seems nowadays, I don't know about you, but it seems like I hear that the so-called Mediterranean diet is getting all the attention. My doctor, who happens to be Greek, is always telling me about the Mediterranean diet, so I think he's a little biased in that sense. But many healthful foods as part of that culture, and of course, if you don't realize it, Paul and Timothy and really the church that was emerging in the ancient Mediterranean world were the OG of the Mediterranean diet. And so Paul can say, everything God created is good. Perhaps we can learn something from their diet, their methods for our own life. Last week, I was telling a pastor friend about this sermon I was getting ready to preach. And he he said to me, you know, what gets me is that we have these church potlucks. And oftentimes, there's just this garbage food that shows up at the church potlucks. And then we ask God to bless it. Now, I love the church potlucks. I love what you bring to the church potlucks when we do them. So I'm not hating too much. But I kind of get what he's saying in another way. I get his point. So certainly there's a place to be mindful of what we put in our bodies. In America, unlike other parts of the world, we put things in food. We process food in a certain way that isn't always good. I'm no expert there. You should consult the experts on this. But I know this to be true. But approaching food with gratitude is still good practice for us. So what does that look like? Well, it means that food can't be our arch enemy. But it also can't be our God at the same time. Matthew 6.25, Jesus says, Is not life more important than food? And so do we eat to live or do we live to eat? Gratitude looks like not overeating, eating until you're satisfied. Looks like not undereating for some. Recognize that we need calories, nutrients, vitamins. The irony of my college days, that season of my life that I shared about, was that I had this warped, restricted diet, and yet I would often overeat to the point of being sick. So that makes no sense, right? How about eating only when you're hungry? Again, recognize that certain health conditions require a, a more consistent intake. In some way, this is kind of easy for me to say because I hate to eat when I'm not hungry. Maybe other people feel that way in the room. I'm not a snacker, 
But when it comes to breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you better watch out because it's time to eat. Do you know what I'm saying? Just ask the staff of our church. I can hardly ever make it until noon before I have to eat lunch. And so that's just who I am. Gratitude finally looks like eating and drinking moderately. Appreciating does not mean abusing. And so appreciating a beer, appreciating a drink, appreciating a great dessert. But maybe we've moved from appreciation into something else when we're having a third or a fourth or a fifth or when we're having thirds or fourths or fifths. How about gratitude with exercise? By God's grace, I've made this shift in my life in some sense where gratitude says, I get to do this, not I have to do this. I am taking care of my body. And so whatever it looks like for you, yard work, the gym, outdoor exercise, an active hobby, competitive sports, a walk, whatever it is, I get to do this. But then, friends, just overall gratitude. God, thank you for a sound mind. Thank you for the ability to move. Thank you for the smile that I get to share with others. So again, the first part I'm recommending is resisting idolatry. The second is restoring gratitude in our lives for the good gifts of God, not abusing, but appreciating. Finally, this morning, while we do take care of our bodies so that we can serve God, serve others as long as possible as people of faith, we also make sure to run after godliness above all. Look at verse 8 where Paul says that physical training does have its place He says, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And so I certainly affirm to you that being active and being mindful of what we eat is certainly part of suing our body. But in this life, as we know, and perhaps as you're experiencing, is that our bodies will deteriorate. We'll lose strength. We'll lose tone. And it's not a bad thing to try to maintain some of that. But training in godliness, Paul says, is eternal. And will always be an appreciating investment. What is godliness then? Godliness, I would say to you, and I think God's word says to us, is becoming like God. Godliness is growing in his grace, growing in his character inside of us. It's a lifestyle of truth, of integrity, of power, of wisdom, of purity, holiness, compassion. So Paul says to Timothy in verse 12, then, don't look down, don't let anyone to look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and in purity. So Timothy, in this context, sees a young gun. Some people there are going to question his authority. But he says, Paul says to Timothy, run after godliness. Timothy, let that be your credibility before man. So how do we run after godliness? 
Well, it starts by knowing God in his heart. And so to do that, we have to be in his word. We don't all have to be scholars of his word, but we have to be people of his word. To know his character, his purposes, his ways. It also means we pursue a life of prayer where we not only talk to God, but we receive from him. We let him train and teach us by his spirit. We have to have a community of people around us who can look into our lives and ask us hard questions and stir us up and encourage us in the life of faith. We may have to deal with unique issues of brokenness inside of us so that we can get unstuck and be free to live purely and authentically. We know that we live in a world that's obsessed in many ways with physical beauty, physique. We know that we're called to take care of our bodies. But we're also called to cultivate a true beauty. What does that mean? Well, I, I would argue this morning, and maybe you feel this in your life, I would argue that beauty is sometimes a more nuanced thing than we think. What I mean is that sometimes we encounter someone who's, who's attractive, physically stunning, but perhaps as we get to know them, as we hear them talk, as we hear them talk about others, as we look at their life, beauty can diminish. Other times we encounter somebody who isn't necessarily stunning, but as we get to know them, as we look at their life, as we look at what they say, what they say about others, as we see goodness in them, as we see Christ in them, they become to us more beautiful, don't they? As we close, I want to look at a quick text from 1 Samuel 16. In 1 Samuel 16, the prophet Samuel, he's sent to Jesse to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the new king of Israel. And Samuel, as he goes, he first encounters Eliab. Eliab was the oldest, probably the tallest probably the strongest, probably the most stunning. But the Lord says to Samuel, I have not chosen him. And then the Lord famously tells Samuel in that encounter, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so friends, we are called to take care of our bodies but we all recognize that we're probably not going to live up to those images that we're always bombarded with. But what we can cultivate inside of ourselves is the amazing, beautiful image of Christ in you, in us, as we pursue true beauty in him. Let us pray. God, we do again just pray for your grace. Thank you, Lord, that we are, that you say we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, Lord, would you empower us? Would you heal us? Would you call us forth to be people of gratitude, people who steward our bodies, but people who run after godliness above all? Lord, heal broken hearts in this area, in this room. Lord, would you lead people on a journey of freedom? for your glory, and their good. In Jesus' name, amen.